internet friends, and welcome back to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to anger your souls and tell you how to live your lives and some shit. Andy, we keep killing things. This is a very appropriate time for you to not mention brightening the day because our douchebag buffer is kind of depressing, at least to me. We do keep killing things, whether it be concepts or people or sports team aspirations. <laughs> okay, so this was your topic last episode. Do you want to do you want to say it? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, last episode I talked about how much I loved the 2017 DuckTales cartoon. And even like I, I phrased it as the ongoing DuckTales cartoon. And I swear to God, I finished editing the episode and then it got canceled. The show has been formally canceled. It's, it's a little ambiguous on whether or not it can't, whether or not they just ran out of story uh, organically, which would be better. Or if the plug just got pulled on the project, either way, Talk about this great thing that I love and adore and then turn around and now it's gone, which is not the first, second, third or fourth time. I don't think that this has happened. Yeah, no, we, let's see. We've we've uh, we killed David Coke. We killed David Coke, we, which is cool. Um, <laughs> we killed Sean Connery, which is we killed Sean Connery. When we talked about James Bond. <laughs> We ruined the Tampa Bay Lightning's like season. We ruined the Tampa Although, Bay Lightning's season. Although I guess they season. came back, right? They came back, right? Well, yeah, it boggles my mind how long we've actually been doing this show. We we killed the playoff hopes of the Lightning two years ago, and then this year they won the cup. And the Tampa Bay Lightning have won the Stanley Cup. Hell yeah! And there's a reason I haven't talked about it. It says to not jinx anything. <laughs> uh, let's see. We killed, uh, we killed the, Eddie Van Halen. We killed Eddie Van Halen. We killed the New England Patriots uh, in in that playoff run, which was the one time I've used this power for good. <laughs> yeah, it's not like this is all bad. Again, like the New England Patriots and one of the Koch brothers. We did okay. But yeah, I mean, call it cognitive... Um, what is it? Cognitive bias or, or correlation effect instead of causation effect. Call it whatever you will. We talk about a thing and then be it a person or concept, that thing goes away in this life. I mean, okay, in fairness, there have been things that we, like, we talked about BoJack Horseman. And that show still had, like, I think two more seasons and closed on its own terms. Like, sure. it was not canceled. It, clo- it ended because it was just the time to end it. And it ended well. We talked about Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Since that episode, we had a whole another season. And I think another one on the way. Uh, we talked about Bob's Burgers. That's had, I think, two seasons since we talked about it. Like, So you're saying we, like, I'm not this weird podcasting King Midas and everything I turn, everything I touch dies. Not everything. Just like two thirds of it. Okay. You know? Like, like. It's always gonna be a dice roll. Well, it, it's been, I think the thing is, it's been like recent, like in a row, it was like Eddie Van Halen and Sean Connery and DuckTales the show. And it's like, what is, should I just talk about only things I don't actually like? 
Or things that are dead already. Or things that are dead. I mean, yeah, L. Ron Hubbard, David Bowie. We've certainly... That's a good way to cover our bases, because it's not like they're going to rise from the grave. Sure. Band of Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> that was already finished. Robin Williams. I mean, that's that, that popped in, I think, when way, 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 way back when Mariah guested, uh, we did Moral Oral. That show had been off the air for, what, 15 years at that point? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. You know, it's, it's it's doable. You just have to be mindful. If you really, really love something, you know what? That's a good metric. It's how do you gauge how much you love or hate something? Do you love or hate it enough that you are willing to risk its death <laughs> to talk about it? Yeah. I mean, that, that, that feels uh, symbolic in a way. I don't know. This isn't the superpower I thought I'd have, but here we stand. I mean, the point is always that you don't get the superpower you think you would have or that you expect or even that you want. Like, you just kind of fall into it. Fair. I I thought you were going to say that you get the superpower you need and I was about to, like, really take some umbrage that I need the ability to kill my darlings. Okay, so the thing I'm thinking about very particularly, um, and spoilers for uh, this show if you haven't seen it, um, Andy, have you seen The Young Pope? I have not actually seen The Young Pope, no. Okay, it's a very weird show. I don't even, I'm not, I watched the entire first season and I truly don't know if I liked it or disliked it. Mm. I truly don't. Um, and I haven't even watched the second season because I just don't want to put myself through that again. But spoilers for The Young Pope, if it's something you care to watch, skip ahead, I don't know, like 60 seconds. Um... By the end of The Young Pope, it's kind of very much alluded to, and everything in the show is alluded to. Nothing is confirmed. But it's kind of alluded to that um, Jude Law's character, the actual pope, is like an actual saint and can perform miracles in the form of when he prays for something, it comes true. And, like, as a child, he prayed for his friend's mother, who was sick and dying, to get better, and she miraculously did. And he's, like, it, they allude to the uh, fact that he's prayed for other people, he's prayed for other things, and they've come true. And at one point, he prays for a person who is a very terrible person, admittedly. Um, he prays for them to I think die like he just stops and prays for something and then the next scene is this other terrible person like getting up in the middle of the night and going to like get a bottle of water and then like dying in her kitchen and it's very clear that he was praying for something involving her and it's just kind of a very weird moment of superpower it's like okay you're a saint anything you pray for hard enough comes true and you've mostly apparently used this power to be a dick to people, um, save like your childhood friend's mother and kill a shitty person who, as Pope, you kind of had the authority to like remove from power anyway, but you decided she needed some kind of divine retribution. It's a weird fucking show, but it's like <laughs> talking about weird superpowers. Sure. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I suppose the only thing to be done is see if uh, this trend holds true. <laughs> and I, I think 
I don't know if the person you're talking about today is dead or not. I've also no- I've also noticed it's only been my topic. So so let's get through the episode and and see if anything happens to Uva Ball. Honey, it's not just your topics. I killed Eddie Van Halen. Oh, that's right. Okay. Well, is, is Carol Kay uh, in danger of anything? I don't know. She is alive. All right. Well, then this is a particularly, I guess, risky thing to be doing. But let's go ahead and start the episode. Okay. I mean. It it does not help that she is a good solid like 85 years old I think. Yeah. Okay, hold on. 1935. Yeah, she's 85. All right, we'll see how this goes. Hey everybody, uh, we're coming out of our douchebag buffer, entering into our show proper. Thank you for joining us here. Uh, quick format note: uh, the way that the show works, we divided this we divide this into thirds. Um, we start off with one of us talking about something we love. Today, that's going to be me. One of us talks about something we hate. That's going to be Andy. And then we take a relationship question, either from you, our lovely audience, or from the internet. And um, I got it this time. So, Andy, you good to go? I'm great, man. Okay. So, I'm going to open this one with a slightly different kind of question. Um, normally, Andy, I ask like, what's your first exposure to this? Or have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. Um, here, I want to rehash something. Okay. Um, so way, way back on a previous episode, I talked about my love of the bass guitar as an instrument. And on that episode, we ended that segment with us talking, uh, with us doing like a quick, not quite goat debate, but just like, who do you think is the greatest bassist of all time? Sure. And at the time, I argued John Deacon, and I was upfront about this at the time. I was like, look, he's he might not be the best, but he's the one at the top of my head because I just watched Bohemian Rhapsody. Like, I just, I, I bought a bass and named it after him. Like, that's, that, I call my backup bass Deaky because it's a, it's a Stingray-style bass, and he played those in the 70s, and I'm really into it. Um, but you answered by saying Getty Lee. Uh, bassist and lead singer of Rush. I did indeed. Yes. Now, uh, here's my question to you, because I feel like it'll be a really interesting segue into this. Uh, assuming that Getty Lee is still your answer, and maybe he's not. If not, um, you can tell me who is your answer, and you can answer this question for them. But I'd like to know what qualities of Lee make him stand out to you as the greatest bassist of all time. Sure. And, and I think really, yeah, the answer for me still is Getty Lee. Um, although in answering this and interrogating it a little more, I think you'll understand why I wonder if there aren't one or two other people who could fit this mold. The thing that popped into my mind about Getty Lee is the mixture of versatility as well as just pure talent. You know, the, the baselines in Rush... I feel like tend to be incredibly complex and creative. And, you know, I, I think about YYZ, um, the instrumental song off of moving pictures where literally they just like the three members of the band start having a solo battle where it's like, okay, mm-hmm. this measure, it's Getty Lee's solo. This measure, it's Alex Lifeson's solo. This measure, it's Neil Pert just blowing your fucking mind. Um, so it's it's a mixture of the actual musical talent to do more than just like your standard like keep the beat bass riff, but to actually do something sonically interesting with it. And on top of that, 
being able to sing, especially when mm. your your vocal melody and your bass line are different things. Like that has always blown my mind for bass or for guitar, just being able to split your brain in those two ways and sing one thing while playing something that is totally different because it's a different instrument. Okay. So I, I kind of sit here and wonder like, uh, okay, based off that answer, do I need to reassess and, and do I need to say Lemmy? I didn't really listen to a lot of Motorhead. I don't know if uh, Lemmy Kilmeister did as different things or if he just did them louder and harder. So, so you know what? I am just going to go ahead and continue with Getty Lee. Okay. I will tell you, Lemmy Kilmeister um, is not as good a bassist as Getty Lee. All right. Um, and I will tell you that, uh, not, not, to, not to say anything against Lemmy. I think Lemmy is a really, really great musician, but Lemmy basically played the bass like it was another guitar. Like, Lemmy started as a guitarist and picked up the bass, and he still, like, played power chords and a lot of single-note, like, rhythm stuff. And, you know, it is actually easier to play guitar and sing than it is to play bass and sing a lot of the time, uh, unless you are just playing the bass like it is a guitar with fewer strings, like just plodding forward rhythm. Getty Lee does actually play complicated bass lines while he sings. So I will say just as a bassist, Getty Lee is better than Lemmy. Well, there you go. I would trust you to know more about that. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's really the, the key of it. It's, it's not just that you're singing and playing and it's not just that you're playing something intricate and like complicated, but it's to do both of those at the same time. Okay. All right. I'm not mad about it. Uh, I would argue that probably makes Getty Lee more an argument for the best singer slash bassist, which is a great debate unto itself. Mm. Because at that point, we could start talking about Paul McCartney. We can start talking about Phil Toll from Thin Lizzy. Um, There's a lot of interesting spots where we we could talk about uh, Jack Bruce from Cream. Like, there's a lot of interesting things to say there. But um, I appreciate your answer. And I wanted that I, I wanted to know that because um, a big part of this segment for me is revising my answer. Okay. Um, I had said John Deacon. I still love John Deacon. I think John Deacon is an incredible bassist, an incredible songwriter, um, a solid singer too. Um, even though he was probably the member of Queen who least highlighted that about himself. Um, but with respect to John Deacon, I want to revise my answer. I think that the greatest bassist of all time may just be Carol Kay. And I want to talk about why. Okay. So, Andy, do you know who Carol Kay... Did you know who Carol Kay was before I sent you a big stack of notes? I still don't know who Carol Kay is. I mean, even after reading your notes, I have an understanding, but I will be totally upfront with you, man. I saw your email come in with like your topic in the uh in in the subject line and i thought to myself oh he misspelled carol kane this is gonna be a weird (laughs) one i didn't know he liked her that much oh no i I do love carol kane but uh no i i'm talking about carol k okay so basic background um born in march of 1935 to two jazz musicians in everett washington 
Carol Smith, which is what she was born as, uh, was gifted a steel string guitar when she was 13. The following year, she began teaching guitar lessons and playing in local jazz clubs. So she's 14 years old, and she is teaching guitar lessons professionally Hmm. and playing professional gigs. By the late 1950s, she was regularly gigging around Los Angeles when she received an offer to come in and do a studio session for Sam Cooke's version of Summertime. And after that point, she realized that she could make a significantly better living as a studio guitarist than teaching or gigging. Some of the songs that she played guitar on were Richie Valens' La Bamba, Bobby Socks and the Blue Jeans' zippity doo and The Crystals' Then He Kissed Me. She also played acoustic guitar on The Righteous Brothers' You've Lost That Love and Feeling, which, if you don't know that song, that is the most played song on radio of the entire 20th century. Okay. Yes. Um, that was um, that song was that song was enormous at a certain point in time. <laughs> so, in 1963, as she was working as a studio guitarist um, during a session, a bassist failed to turn up, and the producer basically asked Carol Kay, "Hey, can you play bass on this?" So she picked it up. She'd never really played bass. She picked it up to fill in. And she decided that she much, much preferred it because it let her come up with a lot more interesting bass lines and parts and stuff to play than the, you know, relatively basic solos or rhythmic chord work she'd do from guitar playing. From that point on, Carol Kay became the most prolific and I would argue most important studio bassist of all time. So I've talked on this podcast before about Um, voice actors and how I feel like they're kind of the unsung heroes of a lot of the media we consume. Totally. Talking about session players in music is kind of the other side of this. Like studio musicians are people who don't get talked about enough. And, and and, and you know what? There's, there is such a thing as being too far into this space um, because um, studio musicians, um, much like, say, uh, the players in a symphony, for example, um, their entire bread and butter is usually in being able to play anything and being very technical. It's not in something like, say, writing. You know, I, you, you, when you talk about Getty Lee, Getty Lee, um, wrote a lot of or co-wrote a lot of the music for Rush. Mm-hmm. John Deacon wrote a bunch of Queen songs. Like they were songwriters. A lot of studio musicians are not songwriters. Some are. And I would argue Carol Kay with the way that she would come up with bass lines contributed so much to that music in terms of writing. But we tend to focus on much less technically proficient players especially if they're the ones who wrote the song. And and I just want to say real quick, that is very interesting to me because I, I think I'm of a contrarian opinion there where I feel like, like you say, it's the studio players who are almost de facto better because 
they need to be able to play all these different styles. It, it, it speaks again to the versatility. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about how there's a, a hard rock in Orlando and every once in a while they would do like a famous albums. And so it would be, you know, classic albums it, live. Yeah, I love those shows. Classic albums live where you have a bunch of, you know, studio session musicians. It's not the band, but they come in and they play, you know, Pink Floyd's The Wall live, but it's nobody from Pink Floyd, but it sounds like Pink Floyd because they are doing the album. And it's, you know, my understanding is it's the same musicians who do all of the classic albums live. And that is so much more impressive to me because they can turn around and and do Pink Floyd and then Cream and then Meatloaf and then Black Sabbath and, and the list goes on and on. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I went to that Classic Albums live show with The Wall. Um, and the Classic Albums live band, th- those are a bunch of Canadian studio musicians. Um, and, and like, I, I, they didn't do this at The Wall show because The Wall show was a double album. So they did, like, the whole thing. Normally they would do the album in the first half, do an intermission, and then do, like, a greatest hits. Mm-hmm. Um, when I saw them do The Doors as L.A. Woman, that's what they did. Like, the first half of the show was L.A. Woman. The second half was, like, assorted Doors songs. I did not get to go to the classic albums live of Dark Side of the Moon, but someone explained to me that the percussionist for money literally pulled out a, like, 1940s cash machine with, like, a stack of coins and did the intro to money. (laughs) Like, the percussion of the intro to money. Like, Andy, if you don't mind, please put a drop of what that sounds like right here. (laughs) No problem. Um, like, and he literally performed on stage with a cash box, the rhythm part of like the coins jingling at the, in the intro of Pink Floyd's money. That's lunacy to me. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of skill that a studio musician can bring to something like this. Again, like a voice actor, you know, a voice actor comes in, does two roles and, like, we'll literally be asked on a spot, like, okay, here's a photo. What do you have for this? They do, like, a quick take, and then they'll say, cool, do that, double the speed, and lower the pitch. Um, and can you give it a Brooklyn accent or a little more of a Brooklyn accent? And they'll be like, done. They do it. And then they're out. And they give you some of the most amazing performances. Studio musicians are like that. It's like, here's here's the track. Here's your chord chart. Give me something. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's gonna work. Um, to get to get back to Carol Kay, um, you know she played on a bunch of the Beach Boys songs. You all of Pet Sounds. That's all Carol Kay's uh, bass player. Okay, which is funny because Brian Wilson was the bassist, right? Um, but he would straight up just give Carol Kay bass lines, and and she actually said like with working with Brian Wilson. She normally would get to come up with bass lines, but Brian Wilson would give her bass lines because Brian Wilson was an orchestrator at the end of the day and a composer. But she would have, like, with when she did sessions with Brian Wilson, she might do, like, 10-plus takes on a song and do sessions late into the night, when in most cases, she'd do three or four sessions a day and just be like, come in, 
okay, here's this Nancy Sinatra song. Here's the chord chart. What do you got? Okay, I got this. Da -da 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 -da. Okay, cool. Uh, let's run that through once with the band. Okay, cool. Everybody's good. All right, everyone's rehearsed. Let's do a take. Okay, let's do a safety take. Thanks, everybody. Go home. We got it. <laughs> and then she would just go to another studio in LA and do the same thing on another song. She did more than 10,000 recording sessions over 50 years. Hmm. She played with everybody from Phil Spector and the Beach Boys to Nancy Sinatra to Sonny and Cher to Frank Zappa, Stevie Wonder, The Supreme, Simon and Garfunkel, The, Tem the Temptations. Basically anything that had a studio basis that wasn't sometimes Motown, which I'll touch on later, she did. She also did like the soundtrack playing for like for TV and movies. She did Shaft. She did Mission Impossible. She did M.A.S.H. That's her playing on those. And that's the one, like, that's the type of thing you never think about. Like, I've I've got a, a, a friend who's a sound guy, and he's a sound engineer, and he's got a playlist of, like, TV intro music, and, and we'll just go ahead and listen to that, and it'll become a game of, oh, that's Daredevil, oh, that's MASH. And you never think about the artists who made those. And so that, that is so cool to me just in a totally different way that, that Carol Kay is the one who did mash and, and shaft especially. Yeah. And, and honestly, like Carol, if, if I showed you a picture of Carol Kay, you would be like, Oh, she looks like someone who's standing in front of you in line at the grocery store. And is, like, complaining that the tomatoes aren't fresh enough this today. Like, like actually, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and I, just I, I'm one. I'm a step ahead of you. I, I've looked her up. And, and, yeah, I mean, I will say there's this amazing picture of her holding a base with these, like, very 70s cat sunglasses. Um, and, and looks very badass there. But beyond that, it's like, yeah. No, if, if I saw this woman at CVS, I wouldn't bat an eyelash. Yeah. And you don't think like, oh, that's the woman who like made these boots are made for walking sound the way that it does. Mm -hmm. Or is the reason why good vibrations has the groove that it does. Hmm. But that's Carol Kay, you know? Sure. Um, so... The major things that I always want to highlight when I talk about Carol Kay, um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on like just her style, like her playing style, very very briefly, because um, I like to reference it a lot. Uh, I don't remember if I talked about this during our bass guitar discussion, but there is an ongoing um, idiot debate in the bass guitar community of do you play with a pick or do you play with your fingers? Mm, okay. Um, to wit, you know, the electric bass guitar was kind of a weird bastard instrument, you know, before you had, you, you used to have double bass players and they would pluck, you know, their double bass with their fingers. Um, if you want to get into some we really dumb nitty gritty of it, there's people who look down on... Uh, Classical bassists look down on jazz double bassists because they play with their fingers instead of a bow. 
but that's getting really stupid. Um, <laughs> but there are people who complain when someone with um, when someone playing electric bass plays with a pick, mm-hmm. um, and 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 so common. Like, okay, I play in a funk soul band. And I play with my fingers. I will play with both, to be honest. It depends what I'm playing. If I'm going to play, like, the rocky, punky stuff or the metal stuff, I'll usually play with a pick. Um, if I'm going to play, like, funk or soul, I'm going to usually play with my fingers. And I have sat there with my bandmates and and just and, – and wondered aloud, like, I wonder if I should play this with a pick. It might It might sound a little bit better. And they're just like – don't don't play with a pick. Don't ever play with a pick. Don't play with a pick. People who play with picks aren't real bassists. Oh, interesting. That's the inner band tea I'm here for. Yeah, right? Um and and again, like I I will It's funny because depending on which member of that band I'm talking to, some of them are very like, "Nah, I love my I love my funk, I love my soul, I love my my jazz and my blues." And there are a few others who like me are a little more varied. Um, and if I reference something like punk music, there is definitely a bit of like, don't, that, that, that punk shit's not real music. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a funny little like weirdness there. Carol Kay plays with a pick. Mm -hmm. I mentioned before, she picked up bass from guitar. She was a guitarist. Guitarists play with picks all the time. No one's ever mad at a guitarist for playing with a pick. Um, there are some guitarists who don't play with picks. Jeff Beck doesn't play with a pick. Robbie Krieger doesn't play with a pick. Um, but by and large, most guitarists will play with picks. Carol Kay plays bass with a pick. And there are, st- and there have been studio producers like Brian Wilson who have said, you know, since Carol Kay plays with a pick, it's such a clean sound and it comes through so nicely and it's good and compressed. And we like that. We like that thunk of it. And it's so even and good and works for our production because they're not married to that. Like they don't give a shit at the end of the day. If it sounds good, it is. Sure. Good. Um, but I love referencing Carol Kay when I get any kind of pushback on the idea of playing a pick. Cause I want to sit here and be like, okay, do you really want to tell me that there's something wrong with the baseline to then he kissed me because it was played by somebody playing a pick? Or all these Supreme songs or these Stevie Wonder songs? Like, are you really going to tell me that it doesn't work because she was playing with a pick? Proof's in the pudding, man. No, that that makes a lot of sense. And that's funny because that ties it back to Lemmy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who plays with a pick. Um, absolutely. So she she plays with a pick. Her lines are these always really melodic, stark, clear memorable bass lines and it's always so weird to like people like to talk about how it's so impressive that Dolly Parton wrote I will always love you and Jolene on the same day Hmm. Uh, and don't get me wrong that is impressive as fuck we stand Dolly Parton Parton. (laughs) yes absolutely and and with Carol Kay was doing three or four sessions a day and just playing on all of these hit songs how many bass lines was she coming up with that were key to incredible hits just like multiple times in a day? Sure. I see your point there. And, and this, and, and okay, I, I need to mention this. She was the only female member 
of this cadre of L.A. session players that later came to be known as the Wrecking Crew. Uh, there's actually a great Netflix documentary about them. Um, but she was the only woman among that group who were just playing on everything, everything coming out in the 60s and 70s, everything that was being recorded in L.A. at the time. And, you know, at the end of the day, she was a single mom at the time. She was a single mom who whose only like whose whose most marketable skill was that she was this brilliant jazz musician basically and just developed this reputation for being really consistent in these sessions coming up with brilliant memorable parts and showing up to the sessions and doing the gigs and she raised two kids on her own on the back of I dropped my kids off at school then drove around to all the studios of LA doing session work on songs that ended up becoming the charts of the time. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that story that is so inspiring and so awesome. And people don't know it. People don't know it because she was a session player because session players largely often did not get credited on things. And let's be honest, because she's a woman, Mm -hmm. because she was a single woman in the 60s and 70s doing this work. And that pisses me off. Sure. I can see why, man. That's... I I had never heard of this woman. Yeah. Um, let me ask you. You watch Mrs. Maisel. Have you seen the most recent season? I have not yet. I'm behind. Okay. There is a character in that season that is based on Carol Kay. Like... Very, very loose. And when you see her, she's played by Liza Vile, who those of you who know Gilmore Girls, she's Paris and Gilmore Girls. She doesn't have a lot of she, she's not important to the season in any way. She doesn't like hinge any plot points, but she has a, a handful of really incredible scenes. And she is fantastic. Now, hmm. Carol Kay herself has been like, um, I have nothing to do with that character. They took a couple pieces of my like book, my my biography um gave her a look and then just slapped her into the show so it's nothing to do with me um carol k is actually a little bit salty about a lot of things um <laughs> but she's uh she's she's a brassy gal um but uh but yeah there's a whole character in this amazon tv show that is loosely based on her fascinating okay yeah um, before I wrap up, there's one thing about Carol Kay that I do want to mention, and I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about this. Um, there is one piece of controversy around Carol Kay that um, if you're not deep into the music world, um, you might not be privy to, but I think it's fascinating. So um, talking about Carol Kay and Motown, um, for background, The Motown session players, which originally were based out of Detroit, they were largely known as the Funk Brothers. Um, They were uncredited by and large on most of the early on most of those Motown hits about until the early 70s. In the early 70s, Motown actually moved from Detroit to L.A. So we're talking about groups like we're talking about people like Stevie Wonder, the Supremes, Marvin Gaye, uh, the Temptations, the Four Tops, all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, the the Funk Brothers were largely uncredited in this time, and that included legendary bassist James Jamerson. James Jamerson is a legend among bass players. 
Um, now, in more recent years, Carol Kay has claimed that there are a number of Motown songs that she was brought in to play on and that Motown execs refuse to acknowledge the fact that she played on them because they don't want to admit that they needed to bring in a white woman when a member of their regular crew, Oof. James Jamerson, uh -huh. a black man, uh -huh. didn't suffice. And this is hard because I personally actually fall somewhere in the middle. With what I know of Motown management and especially what I know of Barry Gordy, who, if I need to do... I said, what do, you, what do you need me to do, man? He said, I need you to get yourself a band, man. I need you to go into the studio and make a record. I need you to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> do a hate on Barry Gordy someday because Barry Gordy was a legitimately awful human being. I'll get so much use out of that drop. <laughs> um, but yeah, I can honestly see Barry Gordy and to a certain extent, you know, Smokey Robinson, um... And some of the other Motown people wanting to keep that point quiet and being willing to lie about it. Um, and the fact is, um, just being upfront about this, James Jamerson had some notorious substance abuse issues that made him unreliable, especially in the 70s after he and all the Motown people moved to L.A. Mm. Um, that's not to discount any of the great work that James Jamerson did. James Jamerson is one of my favorite bassists. I love him. And... He had a lot of demons, and it notoriously made him unreliable. So I can absolutely see, you know, Smokey Robinson trying to do a session, James Jamerson either showing up drunk or, you know, not showing up, period, and going, okay, um, I'm going to call the white lady. And they call Carol Kay in, and they pay her her day rate, and they say, all right, can you play on this song? Can you play on this Stevie Wonder song? And to be fair, she had played on Stevie Wonder songs before because Stevie Wonder wasn't married to using the Funk Brothers for everything. And and real um, quick, that's the point that like instantly, yeah, this becomes such a uh, a nuanced topic because I'm sitting here being like, and she did it, but like, yeah, don't want to discredit another legend in the industry, but but she did it, yeah. So it's like, I can absolutely believe the Motown people would do that. At the same time, some of the songs that she claims to have played on, I know James Jamerson's style. I know Carol Kay's style. They don't sound like Carol Kay playing. Mm. The, the biggest example to me is um, I Was Made to Love Her, the Stevie Wonder song. Um, that's sound that's a song that she said that she like she has a whole story about how she came up with the baseline to that song and it's a well-known baseline and it sounds like a jamerson baseline motown people say it's a jamerson baseline k says that she played on it what i probably think happened is jamerson played on it they had miscon they, they had issues with it and they asked her to probably come in and she probably did a recording session with it. And then in the mixing, they ended up going with Jamerson's. Mm -hmm. Like, I probably assume something like that happened. Like, you're a comics fan. This feels like the Jack Kirby debate all over again. For those of you who don't know, Jack Kirby, who co-created a hundred of the best Marvel characters, has claimed that he created even more of them. Like, he claimed that he created Spider-Man right. by himself. Right. 
when, you know, just sheer records show that he didn't. He wasn't even in the room at the time. Um, and it's, it's, it's that thing where I go, I don't want to discredit the things you have done. And I don't necessarily believe that this happened exactly the way that you, that you are stating. And you're also being screwed. Basically, I think Carol Kay's probably got a few things wrong. Motown is definitely not all the way trustworthy. And at the end of the day, we're sitting here fighting about like, okay, we have a woman in the 60s and 70s and a black man in the 60s and 70s. Right. And who and, and we're kind of playing marginalization Olympics. I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but I wouldn't feel right talking about Carol Kay without talking about that. Sure, and you know, somehow uh, it's Barry Gordy's fault. <laughs> Absolutely. I will happily blame Barry Gordy. <laughs> I will blame Barry Gordy for James Jamerson not getting his due. I will blame Barry Gordy for Carol Kay not getting her due. I will blame Barry Gordy for sexism, for everything that went wrong in the 1970s, for the entire Reagan administration, <laughs> for why Michael Jackson was hor- was like horribly destroyed in life, for why my like I start I get headaches around three in the afternoon sometimes. It's all Barry Gordy's fault. Oh, this is a font I didn't know existed. Yeah, you you got to do a hate on him pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, I can make that happen. Um, so yeah, Carol Kay. I really like. I love Carol Kay. Carol Kay. I will probably argue is my favorite bassist of all time. I will definitely argue she is probably the most influential bassist of all time. And I'm hard-pressed to really think of anybody, technically speaking, who is better than her. Even if we're talking about people like Deacon and Lee, who played on their own stuff, are great songwriters. Carol Kay could play circles around both of them. She could play everything that they could play and then add dominant seventh chords that work for somehow where you don't expect them to. Like, she will do shit far and beyond what they are capable of. And I would argue they would probably agree with me on that sentiment. So more than anything, because she's a session player, because she's of a marginalized group, because she's so influential and so few people know who the fuck she is, I wanted to talk about Carol Kay. So I appreciate you, Andy. Thank you so much for giving me that that moment. Um, I believe there are several Carol Kay playlists on Spotify. Uh, if I can track one down, I'll link it in the show notes. Um, but listen to her stuff. She and listen to her bass playing and her guitar playing. She's actually an incredible guitarist too. But I just I want to appreciate this woman. She is 85 years old and she currently makes her living teaching bass lessons over Skype. Like she is still alive and still doing things. She doesn't do session work so much anymore. Um, she got really disillusioned and burned out on it. So now she teaches bass lessons for kind of expensive for bass lessons, but you know what? She deserves it. Yeah. And yeah, I just wanted to highlight her. Of course, man. And that's, that's part of, you know, the goal of the show is to be able to highlight these wonderful things and people that I mean, I, again, I had no idea. So no, this was awesome, man. Thank you for bringing her to the table. Absolutely. You want to shift over to our hate? Hell Yeah. The other thing we do on the show is let people know about some of the, in our opinion, worst people, uh, 
in various industries and it's been a minute since I've talked about a director and I don't think we've talked about a film director as a hate. Uh, no, we've done two loves. Exactly. But no. So, all right, I'm here for yeah, it. Yeah, so it's it's very fitting that uh, this distinction goes to the infamous Uva Bowl. Um, and Alex, just, just a little kind of a question here. Do you know what happens when you cross Michael Bay with Ed Wood Jr. and inject a raging boner for late 90s video games? I don't know, but it sounds like a proud boy. <laughs> well, he is German, so... <laughs> Oh dear God! Okay, All yeah, right. not just just aside real quick. Not to say that Uva Bull is a Nazi. I have no proof of that. However, he is kind of a piece of shit in a bunch of other different ways. The answer to my humorous question is, of course, you get Uva Bull, who is the infamous and maligned film director of such hits as House of the Dead, Alone in the Dark, Blood Rain, and Far Cry. I have seen like half an hour of House of the Dead on TV and I got bored and turned it and changed the channel. That's going to be a a running theme um, through his work, I think. Um, Born in Vermenskirchen, Germany. (laughs) I'm sorry, Vermelskirchen, not Vermenskirchen. Vermelskirchen. That's just a fucking great name. It just sounds like something you yell when you stub your toe. Exactly. Born in Vermelskirchen, Germany in the 60s, Bull is an independent filmmaker famous for making the most god-awful video game adaptation movies ever seen. I felt like destroying something beautiful. Um, it's, it's a pretty pronounced trope that you cannot make a good video game movie. It's impossible. In fact, to the point where, like, until last year's Sonic the Hedgehog... Like people pretty much stood by and large that it you you just could not make a good video game movie, and that is very much because of the groundwork that Bowl laid in the uh, early two thousands, like pioneering video game adaptation movies. Assuming you haven't seen any of them, which you just mentioned, you've seen a little bit of House of the Dead. Uh, I want to play a. a quick game where I compare the films of his that I have seen to the video games that they are based off. Okay. Hit me. So you know, you're starting with house of the dead house of the dead is a famous, um, arcade shooter. Like it's one of the last, like, like it's not so much a PlayStation or, or a console game. It's you would go into an arcade and it would be one of the elaborate setups where they've got, you know, a, a blue gun and a red gun. And you go through a house, you know, railroad shooting zombies. Yeah, I think I played it in, like, a movie theater yeah, before. Yeah, absolutely. You know? That's that's where you find that sort of thing. It's that kind of game. House of the Dead is this, like, bright, boring, very weird... Like, the whole thing is, like, the video game takes place in, like, this this creepy old castle... The the move or the video game takes place in this creepy old castle. The movie takes place on an island where there's like a rave, and then all of a sudden there's zombies, and there's a guy who like looks like he's stitched together, like he's Pinhead or something. Um, sure. And it's it's a very it, it's a complete and utter wreck. It has a two on IMDb. Okay. Um, I can honestly say I remember none of it. I wa- again I watched maybe. 
20 or 30 minutes and I don't remember a single thing I saw. Yeah, I mean, the, the best I can say is that the poster for the movie is unironically, like, dope. That's, that's literally okay. it. Um, moving on to um, Alone in the Dark, which is a Christian Slater, Tara Reid um, garbage fire. The Alone in the Dark okay. video games are these incredibly, like, claustrophobic, like, they kind of pioneered horror video game as a concept, as a genre works that, again, take place in a creepy old mansion. And the Alone in the Dark movie is this Michael Bay action schlock fest about, like, evil demons that live under the ground and are horrible CGI monsters. And most importantly, the majority of the movie is not set in the dark. Um, <laughs> Harry Knowles, who is the guy who wrote the screenplay for the movie, he originally made a pitch and bull bought it and then immediately started changing everything. And when they got into fights about it, Bull basically said, no, I know what people want. They want big, stupid action with explosions. So that's exactly what I'm going to give them. I'm not going to kiss your ass and do your movie. Um, for the record, Alone in the Dark has a whopping, whopping 2.4 on IMDb. Um, and and I, I could go through the list, but the last one I want to do is Blood Rain. Um, because this is the, which I played that game. Like I remember that video game. I played that game a little bit and, and blood rain. The film is the first time I ever walked away, like legitimately betrayed by a film. Blood rain is this, uh, this action horror video game series that is basically like all about a super hot vampire with like these sword tonfas killing Nazis. That is what Blood Rain is about. It was a very stupid game, but like it was it would be fun for like an hour. Yeah. It's a very like 2000 game and it's it's totally geared for like 12-year-olds, but in what it is, it's it's fine. <laughs> Blood Rain the film takes place in like medieval times and is this incredibly boring origin story of the character that is all about like it tries to be game of thronesy but with vampires but it's an absolute like wreck of a movie that god i'm just i'm, I'm reflecting on it and and i can't i can't tell you the amount that just like i watched this thing excited i watched this thing as like an excited again 12 year old being like hell yeah redheaded vampire like this is going to be some underworld shit and it is boring boring is the biggest word it's boring and nonsensical and again to follow the trend has a three on imdb all of these movies were incredible commercial failures. All of these movies were just met with instant critical revulsion and have gone down as stains on the filmmaking industry. And, and Uva Bowl became synonymous with bad video game movies to the point where Blizzard, who is the company that created the Warcraft franchise. And, and, you know, for a time where the, biggest titans of the video game industry blizzard once said that they would never sell the rights to a warcraft movie but specifically 
would never sell them to Uva Bowl. Hmm. Like we have no interest of making a movie. And even if we did, we are never going to let you near the project. Interesting. Okay. Um, I know this is, I know, I, I think I know the answer to this based on what I see on the notes, but I hear all of that. And the thing that I keep wondering, the question that I keep wanting to ask myself as someone who is not really familiar with Uva Bowl in and of himself is you give me the ratings for these movies on IMDb. How did they do financially? All of them were complete financial failures. Like, like that's the thing I mentioned Ed Wood, like Ed Wood was a dope with a dream. And like he, he made all these awful movies, but they were awful mostly because they weren't really well written and they had shoestring budgets and they were, you know, cheap B pieces of crap that for a certain subject, certain sub for a certain subsect of people have gone on to be beloved cult classics in a mystery science theater kind of way. Sure. Uva bull has always had funding. Like all of these movies I listed were studio financed, like, like massive projects. Blood rain had a $60 million budget and came back with five. Alone in the Dark, $25 million budget, and weirdly enough, also came back with five. None of these movies were financial successes in any way, shape, or form, because they don't even have the charm of it's so bad it's good. Like, they're so bad, they're bad. They're so bad that they're also bad, and there is next to no entertainment value to be actually derived from the film itself. Okay, um, let me ask you this, because... You say the point about how, um, who was it that Uva Bull said um, they just want, I, I don't, I'm not going to worry about making your movie. They just want explosions, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, he was talking to a guy named Harry Knowles, who is a, uh, a film writer who wrote the original Alone in the Dark screenplay. Okay, so I immediately flash, you know who Roger Corman is, yep. right? Okay, so for those of you who don't know, Roger Corman very famously was like a studio mogul slash director slash producer who always knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, all the Roger Corman movies, with like the couple of exceptions of like his terrible Fantastic Four movie, which never even got released, pretty much all of them were like schlocky. Having having tons of violence and sex and nudity and gross out stuff and gore uh, kinds of movies that were 100% made for like no money with no nothing actors that he knew were only going to get rented by people who were either going to hate watch it or just watch it for like gore and sex. Right. Pat Ingle. Don Stroud, Diane Varsi, and Roger Corman's Bloody Mama. And he built an entire... And, and all of those movies, because they were so low budget, did financially okay. They did well enough that he could keep a studio going. Because he would make them for nothing, he would pump them out quickly... And very famously, like, there are, there are directors, I think specifically of James Cameron, who have talked about they got their start by directing and working on Roger Corman movies. And there was this um, kind of 
weird trend in Hollywood that people, some of the people who would work on these Roger Corman movies would go on to be really successful directors because after working on a Roger Corman movie and realizing, okay, we have no budget. We have broken lights. We have this. We have that. We have a script that's shit. And they would learn on the job how to do everything on a film set such that when James Cameron finally came to the table to do, for instance, a Terminator at where he was shooting a bunch of the film illegally because he couldn't get permits, he was like, this is nothing. Let me tell you stories about the two Roger Corman movies I did. Yeah. And the shit that we would have to do there. And I think about this Rod I think about Roger Corman knowing exactly what his audience wanted and knowing he was never gonna have a blockbuster hit. It was always just supposed to be make enough money to make the next one and we all get paid at the end of the day for what we've done. It sounds like Yuva Bull doesn't even have that. He's literally like if they're all flops, how is he? having a career still right and and so to touch on that like because you're right roger corman um was a bit of a schlock master in, in his own self and uva bolt is a self-pronounced schlock master but there is such a difference and there's a reason why like nobody's coming away being like hey man i worked on alone in the dark here's my magnum opus it's an oscar winner the key to bull's career i won't say success is that he, you know, I called him an independent filmmaker. I don't mean that he makes independent films. I mean that he independently finances all of these projects. And the way that he was able to do that was to basically raise the money in Germany through a tax shelter. And then there was a financial loophole that made it so that he would always get half of his funding back from the state. Like he, he, he's gone on record being like, yeah, the secret was I exploited a loophole and Germany, Germany, the country would give me half of my money back every time because of this loophole. And in fact, that it actually bit him in the ass because in 2010, like the state, like paid attention to what he was saying and was like, oh, well that's dumb. We're not going to do that anymore. And then he lost that funding trick. Uh, but by that point, his career was already pretty much dead in the water anyway. So Bull, like he's never made a financially successful major studio film, but the way he was able to keep trying again and again and again was just literally through like tax dodging essentially. Okay. And fascinating. Yeah. Like, you know what, if, if it's there, I, I got to give the guy props for, for seeing the loophole and, and finding a way to exploit it. I mean, here's the thing. You know, you read his biography, Bull has never been anything other than a filmmaker. He he would make movies as a kid. He, you know, the, the first thing that got him into prominence before um, making video game adaptations is he would start, he, he made a couple of like low budget horror movies and they're, they're, they're fine. They're, they're not quite good, but it's like, oh yeah, okay, you have promise. We'll give you this project. Oh God, we shouldn't have given you the project. It, sure. it would be one thing if Uva Bull was... A, a hapless idiot, a, a Rob Liefeld who just <laughs> comes in super hot and, and has no idea what he's doing, but has a lot of confidence and then quietly gets removed from all these projects. It would be one and Ed Wood or Ed Wood. Exactly. It, it would be one thing if, if it was that, but the double feature, the second act to the tire fire that has, that is Uva bowl is that he's really a dick. 
the man is infamously hostile to criticisms. I, I've got a quote here. The, the man came out with a movie called Postal, which isn't a video game adaptation. Uh, it's a movie that came out around like 2008, I would say. And somebody from Wired magazine published a negative review. And Bolt responded with a personal email to this woman saying, you don't understand anything about movies. You're an untalented wannabe filmmaker with no balls and no understanding of what my movie is. You don't see courage because you are nothing and no one goes to your mom to fuck her because she's been cooking for you for the last 30 years. She really deserves it. Which <laughs> is... What? So literally, like, this guy makes a movie, and the movie isn't great, somebody calls the movie isn't great, and he personally emails this reviewer, uh, and, and, and I said it was a woman, it's actually a man, I mixed that up, he, he, he emails this guy and is like, you have no balls, and you're just upset because no one goes home to fuck your mom. For a negative movie review, the, the unprofessionalism aside, it's like... Dude, just just let it go. And that's not even that is the tip of the iceberg to what I'm talking about. Uh, this Uva Bowl very famously challenged what he saw as his five biggest critics to face him in a publicized 10 round boxing match, which is so <laughs> you mentioned stupid, stupid. You mentioned Proud Boys earlier. That's such a. I feel like proud boy move of, oh, you don't like my work? Come meet me in the ring, motherfucker. He 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 challenges his critics to a, a televised 10-round boxing match. And I don't know what's more fascinating. The fact that he actually find found five people who took them up in this, or the fact that Bull went undefeated. I'm not surprised he went undefeated, because it sounds like he's... I can completely believe that he is a, like toxically masculine douchebag who probably attends a boxing gym. Yeah. And he's probably fighting people who maybe don't attend a boxing gym. At, like a little bit of practice goes a long way and frankly, if you're if you're choosing to challenge somebody to something and it's something you do and they don't, I'm not surprised that he went undefeated. He probably boxes on the weekends or in the mornings or yeah, something. Yeah, that really seems to be the case. And and if you look at the guy, I mean, he he looks like a big scary German dude, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. That's why celebrity boxing like matches are stupid, because Well folks, we're all out of time. This is Johnny Gomez saying good fight, good night. They probably especially if they're fighting professionals, because if the celebrity like spends six months training for a fight versus somebody who's probably been boxing since they were a teenager, even if they're not a very good professional boxer, right? The difference is stark. Like, I've never been in a fight with somebody who fought professionally, but I fully know I would get my ass handed to me. Sure. So, I mean, you know, the guy is still working today mostly as an executive producer than anything. Um, you know, I mentioned his tax loophole got pulled out from under him. And basically, like, he he realized he couldn't make studio features anymore and has stopped trying to adapt video games. So he doesn't have $60,000 projects anymore. Uh, the movies he come he comes out with are still, like, pretty damn bad. But it's so much better than where he was like like the the general consensus is that bull has like reined it in and is making better movies but better does not mean good 
His movies are still okay. like, like nothing, no project he's ever worked on has more than a four and a half on IMDb. And I, I understand I keep using a rating scale, but the point is like the man does not make good films. He's just kind of pulled himself out of the limelight. The, the last project of any note for bowl is actually a documentary and it's the second documentary to be made on him because if nothing else, he's an interesting figure to talk about. Uh, and it, it, it okay. came out in 2010 and it is titled fuck you all the Uva bull story. <laughs> and, and that, in a, it's not great. Yeah, that in a nutshell explains like, like that's Uva bull, a garbage filmmaker who, who could only ever finance his films through deceit and literally would beat up his naysayers. Uh, he is one of the only people to ever win the worst career achievement Razzie and he absolutely deserves it. Well, I'm fascinated. Um, <laughs> I would say a couple, I would say check out his movies, but I honestly don't think people should. Uh, I just have a couple of questions. Okay. First of all, would you watch an Edward style biopic about this man? Oh, a biopic. Absolutely. <laughs> Like, made by a good filmmaker. Yes, absolutely. Oh, that would be such fun. Okay. Because it sounds fascinating. Here's the other thing. And maybe this one's less of a question and more of just like a... This is something I zeroed in on. This whole boxing match with his critics being hostile to criticism thing. I think... You know, this might be worth its own topic at some point later, but... I kind of view it as something, it, it's at the very least a pink flag, if not a red flag, mm. when artists are routinely, frequently, regularly hostile to criticism. Like, no one likes a bad review. We can all get that. We can all understand that. No one's that, no one's that happy about getting mixed reviews. Maybe if you get, like... Some good and some bad. Like, I understand that. But, and 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 this was something that I noticed a lot of as I started following music and filmmakers. Um, you know, people who would say things like, critics just don't get something like this. Or worse, critics are just failed artists. Mm -hmm. Criticism is an art form. This is something you learn if you actually, like, study art. Like, if you say, study, you know, I have an MFA. It's an arts degree. If you study art criticism, if you study music criticism, criticism is an art unto itself. It's a literary art. And there is something to be said about a good critic being someone who has some experience. You know, Roger Ebert is so often cited as being, you know, one of the greatest um, movie critics of all time. We've talked about him on the show for that very reason. You said, didn't you say at one point that you kind of wanted to be a Roger Ebert, Andy? Yeah, I mean, just just conceptually, the idea of being a film critic sounds like such a just catch of a job. Yeah. And there is often a stereotype that critics just, you know, shit on things needlessly. A good critic is someone who will always praise and criticize appropriately with backup, when Roger Ebert loved a movie, he loved a movie. Mm -hmm. And he would tell you what he loved about it. When he liked a movie, he would tell you how he liked it and what he had problems with it. When he thought a movie was not very good but had some promising aspects, he would say, this was good, this was good, these were the things that made it fall, fall down for me. 
And when he had a movie that he truly thought was terrible, he would eviscerate it in the most entertaining way possible. Armageddon is such a raucous, ugly assault on the senses that no matter what you pay to get in, it's worth more to get out. It's nothing but an action trailer that lasts almost two and a half hours. Roger Ebert admittedly tried to have a career writing movies, didn't do very well at it, but in the course of that career, he had also studied movies. He'd also learned movies, and that's what made him such a good critic. He knew movies inside and out. He had done it. He wasn't the most successful at it, but you don't need to be successful at an art to be a good critic. I would argue that if there's a critic, like when Roger Ebert got into that shit with Vincent Gallo, we may have talked about this on the podcast before, when he got into that shit with over the brown bunny, you know, he had this back and forth in the press with the director of what he considered to be the worst movie of all time that he gave one of the worst reviews he'd ever written for. And like this dude... Like straight up, like put a like what what was it? He he put a curse on Ebert's prostate <laughs> and called him a fat pig. And he was like, "It is true that I am fat, but one day I will be thin, and you will still be the director of the Brown Bunny." Yep, one of the greatest insults ever. Like just it's 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 incredible, and it's just and the a dude came back and did some like other shit. Uh, he, he said that Ebert had the physique of a slave trader and, and yeah, he put the curse on his, like, uh, on his prostate or his colon. And he was like, and, and again, Ebert's just like, my colonoscopy was more entertaining than your movie. That is how a critic should handle an idiot. Mm-hmm. If you are a critic who decides it would be fun to try and fight your, your idiot artist, you maybe get what you deserve when said artist defeats you especially if they're setting the terms of the challenge because i guarantee you if i have to be in a fight with somebody i'm going to try and like or if i have to be in conflict or prove myself in a contest with someone best believe i'm going to choose something that i'm good at i'm gonna i'm gonna sit here and do something that i have a talent for like making burritos or remembering lyrics to rem songs or just decide you're gonna do whatever the fuck you want to do and take a couple of jujitsu lessons or do some bare knuckle boxing. And then just when someone criticizes you challenge them to a fight. I'm just saying Trent Reznor hated the critics too. And a lot of nine inch nails albums got panned by critics. And as far as I know, Trent Reznor basically just went, well, the albums are selling the studio's still letting me do things. I don't really give a fuck. This is me. Yeah. You can take the Trent Reznor approach. You can take the Roger Ebert approach. You don't fight an angry German in a boxing <laughs> ring. It's like invading Asia in the winter. Yeah, exactly. Uh, on that on that note, should we move on to our very silly question? Let's tear into our very silly question. All right. You want to read this one or shall I? Uh, you go ahead. I read the last one. All right. Cool. So this comes to us from our friends at relationships.txt. Um, up front. Throw away because my husband is really active on Reddit. We had a small wedding recently outdoors and hired a photog to take pictures. In the pictures where we aren't looking at each other, my husband is, unbeknownst to me, smiling with his mouth open extremely wide and pointing at me with finger guns. Not like he is going to shoot me, more like, look at her! 
It's sweet, but really ruins the photos. I didn't know until the pics came back. We have maybe six wedding photos that I would want anyone to see. We spent $1,700 on the pics, and most of them are so embarrassing. My husband won't retake any of them, and also wants our Christmas card to be the one where he's making the face while tipping an invisible fedora. Ironically, I guess. He thinks it's funny and shows our personalities. But it really feels like it's making me out to be a chump because I'm smiling sincerely. Should I just go ahead and give up this time, or should I press further on the photos? It's not the first time he's done something like this, and in the past, I've kind of just allowed it. But this is our wedding. So, as always, um, we need a name. Okay, we need... um... We're dealing with a married couple here. We're dealing with a married couple where one of them is sincere, um, trying, maybe doing their best. And the other one is a um, jackass? A a little bit. I'll I'll touch on that in my answer for sure. Yeah, I'm sitting here going like, okay, um, we have any number of sitcom, both live action and animated Husbands and wives where there is an idiot husband and a long-suffering wife. Um, we can do the Griffins. We can do the Simpsons. We can oh, do... Oh, this is, this is a Peter Griffin. Oh, this no. Is, this is Peter and Lois. This, this is like... If, if, uh, if the show was rebooted and we got their, like, their wedding flashback, this would be absolutely a Family Guy bit. Hmm. Okay. All right. So, so, so we're addressing Lois Griffin uh, about Peter's behavior. Ah! Now, are you gonna go to Meg's play or not? Yes. You like eating red carpet, tough guy? Yes. Say you like eating red carpet. I like eating red carpet. Giggity. Yep. Um, I read the question. Do you want to start? Yeah. Um. You know the 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 thing is. I really hate that I have a very clear image in my mind about what Peter looks like just based <laughs> off this accounting of his behavior. Okay. And, that, and that's really not fair or necessarily kind, but you know, you call him a jackass and either, either jackass or either this is like, this is more that hapless kind of idiot. Um, I'm wondering more about Lois and Peter's lives and specifically like what the courting process was like, what Peter's social circle is like. Cause it might just be, he, he lives in a, uh, a social circle that this sort of thing is bit acceptable and, and what they do. Mm-hmm. Sure. It it doesn't make it acceptable for a wedding at all, and it it definitely is like like seventeen hundred bucks for wedding pictures is honestly kind of on the higher end for a standard wedding. Um, I didn't pay that much for my wedding photos, and and they were lovely, and and so to have that price tag, and then to come away and be like, well, we've got six that are good. We've got six that aren't you that aren't you making a meme face at the camera. That is incredibly upsetting and that is not okay. 
I feel like the best thing you can do though is compromise. I I feel like if he doesn't want to get the wedding pictures retaken, that is very unfortunate, but also I don't know how you're going to be able to force him into that situation where you can retake the pictures. I think the compromise is you go and say, okay, this really hurt me and it's going to be a scab for the rest of our marriage that I can't even look at my wedding photos without having this painful memory, but I will not make you retake them. There's also no way in hell these are our Christmas cards and you are going to take some good pictures with me if you, if you care about me and want to make this right. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm going to piggyback off that. You mentioned making this right. And that's exactly where I was with this. Um, Lois, you <sighs> retaking the photos is a weird thing. I, I, I'll be honest. When I read that in here, I was like, you can retake wedding photos. So like, are you guys just going to like dress back up in your outfits and go back to your wedding venue and like get selected members of your um wedding to come back in their dress and like is this like reshoots for a movie like i i didn't i didn't understand that to be a thing but okay assuming that that is a thing if he's not willing to redo them i assume there'd be more of a cost involved with that i assume it would be a lot of things um it is shitty that he's dismissing that up front but you and at the very least if he's not going to be willing to do something like that he should make it up to you like andy's right if you 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 literally have six photos that you'll be able to put up in your home that you'll be able to spread out around places um and be happy both of you happy with it um okay he thinks that it showcases your personality cute maybe you put up like one or two of those it sucks these are the most expensive photos you've ever had and you only have a few of them that you both yeah like. if, we're, if we're if we're breaking it down um that was 285 dollars per photo if you're only going to use those six uh which in fairness i mean what do headshots run for andy <laughs> um but no, that's that's shitty. And he should know that that's shitty. Even if that's even if he thinks like they showcase his personality, like he didn't consult you on any of this. He didn't bring any of it to your attention. He just decided to do that. And that's a shitty dynamic, you know? If he wanted to take some silly ones, okay. That could have been a conversation y'all had and you could have had a few of that and a little bit of something else. Like you could have compromised, but he just ran with it. Which is a dick move, and he deserves to know it's a dick move, and he should, frankly, have to work to make it up to you. He should be, I don't know, maybe you guys have a really great first anniversary shoot, um, and you take some really nice photos. Definitely don't bend on this fucking Christmas card yeah. thing. Because, like, that's, that is just salting, salting a fucking wound here. And there's, there's a very particular thing that I think happens with a lot of let's just be honest dudes um andy you've got friends and family like this i know i've got friends and family like this it's the people who are able to be like shut up you're being dramatic it's not that big a deal and 
that is a symptom of a deeper issue. I didn't care about my wedding photos, by and large, as far as the taking of them was concerned. But my partner did. And my partner was also willing to be cool with me about the things that I cared about. So I compromised on our wedding photos. And I did things that I've real, I wasn't terribly happy about doing. I dyed my hair for my wedding. Andy, you were there. I didn't um, realize that. I yeah. usually have... Yeah, I usually have this, like... I'm very salt and pepper, y'all. Those of you who don't know me in person or have never seen me, I'm very salt and pepper in my hair most of the time. Um, and when we did our engagement photos, um, I hadn't dyed my hair. And you can see the salt and pepper. And I look a lot older in my engagement photos. Um, and after getting those back, my, you know, Stephanie was looking at them and was like, listen, for our wedding, I really, I don't want that to be so prominent. Um, I would like you to dye your hair for the wedding. You know, here's, you know, this is my, this is my person who does all my hair. I would love it if you went to go see her and you got your hair dyed for the wedding. And I hate dyeing my hair. It's not something I ever want to do. I think it's very bad for your hair. Um, but I was like, okay, you know what? I can make that compromise. It'll make you happy. Um, you're compromising with me on a few dif different other things, uh, that are very important to me. So, you know, this is one thing I will give to you. And that was a compromise that we made because the photos mattered to her so deeply. The photos mattered to you. They mattered less to your husband. It's not a big deal that they didn't matter to your husband. It's that what you wanted didn't matter to him. And he decided unilaterally that his joke was more important than something you sincerely cared about. That's a bad dynamic. And there needs to be consequences for it. Not to say you need to punish him, but you should tell him what this means to you, how it hurts you, how you feel it's going to be, how you feel that the photos you're going to hang around your home for the rest of your lives together are going to be affected by his dumb prank. And how he should really make it up to you. You absolutely should do something else with your Christmas cards. If you don't use your don't use one of the six wedding photos, take a new photo, something like that. Fine, that can be another conversation. But you really need to talk about how he unilaterally decided his joke was more important than something that you invested in and you cared about. That's the conversation to have here. Yeah, I mean I think really the thing to lean into is being is explaining this hurts me and this is a permanent thing. I yeah. over the entire course of our marriage, I will remember how you didn't care about our wedding photos. Yeah. You don't say who spent what on them or if, if you guys, you know, if, uh, if you guys pooled your resources for the $1,700 or what would be even worse if you paid for the wedding photographs and your husband really messed up like the finger guns thing. Okay, fine. That, you know, I, I'm sure there's one or two photos of me being incredibly enthusiastic and doing something silly like that too. It's the fact that like, it's so many and it's all, it, there's no way that it was accidental for the vast majority of your wedding photos. He's doing something goofy or meme level. And 
I wonder if it's not a joke. I wonder if that makes it better or worse. If, if he's truly just like, no, this is who I am. I address my, my female friends by going, m'lady. Um, but Ew. all that aside, like, you can't bend. And, and the consequence is explaining, this hurts me. This really hurt me. This is always going to be there and cause me, you know, a level of emotional hurt. And then he needs to show that he does care about you enough to do something to make it right. Or if he doesn't, then you've got a much bigger problem. So, yeah. And if he dismisses you as just saying it was a joke or this showcases our personalities, it is valid for you to say something like, I don't appreciate that part of your personality, your personality is deciding how I'm going to look in our photos and taking away your agency. Sure. That's that is a personality trait for a lot of dudes, especially take it from me. I I I am a like I live off of making the jokes. That is that was the defense mechanism that I as a shy, chubby, bookish kind of dickish kid had was I could be funny and I was frequently funny at other people's expense. And there is a difference between ribbing and, you know, pulling a couple of, if six photos were him making the fucking finger guns or making faces, cool. But six photos aren't right. And that is, not okay. And you shouldn't dismiss your feelings about this because shit like this will happen again. And again and again. You say this isn't the first time. It won't be the last time. Even if you talk to him about it, it won't be the last time. But the point of being married is to grow as a couple and as individuals. Not to just be the same callous dick weasel you were when you got together all of the time, always. My sister once told me, that if you are the same person five years later than you were five years ago, you're doing life wrong. Hmm. That includes in your marriage. Shout out yeah, to I Steph, to say. My, uh, my older sister. She's she's got her pearls of wisdom. So thank you, Stephanie, for the 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 tag team advice there. <laughs> <laughs> That's Stephanie, my sister, not Stephanie, my right, wife. You it's. Know. I call one Steph, I call the other Stephanie because that's how I differentiated in my brain. Because otherwise, things get weird. As, as really long fast, as you so. differentiated in your brain, yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, we we wish Lois the best. This one came to us from relationships.txt, so we will of course post a link to this. But you know, you never know if uh, an internet person hears it. If you are a real life person and you have a relationship question that you want our perfectly unqualified advice for, we promise we'll give it, and we promise we will send it to you, so you can actually like get it and and at least have our words of wisdom ready and available for you. You can send those questions into love, hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple podcast, Google podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even tune in radio. Hey mom. Um, you raised two kids who apparently like have both given decent advice. So 
I assume yay, like good points. Good on you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you can also rate or review us on any or all of those platforms. Helps people find the show, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Uh, send us your questions there. Follow us to keep up with new episodes. You know the situation. That's right. You also know that you can find me, Andy Bowell, at Joe cop 2113 on twitter you can also find my other show cult fiction which i do with the incomparable stephanie johnson uh we're not going to watch any uva bowl films on that because he's not cult he's just bad but we do watch cult films <laughs> oh god i'm waiting for the moment where you guys do an episode and you're just like is this cult no this isn't cult this is just bad. oh we've had a couple for damn sure you can find those oh, episodes god. at cult fiction uh which is available everywhere else that alex just listed our show that's right you can follow me on twitter and instagram and tiktok at a underscore x underscore r u i z um thanks y'all thanks for listening take care of one another Ah, we love you dearly, and as always, tell your enemies.